The following program is an exclusive Disruption Networks production. So you just bought your dream home, and now it's time to move. Let's face it, nobody likes to move. All the packing, unpacking, lifting, upstairs, downstairs, and broken everything, including your back. Let the professionals at EJA Moving Company take all the stress and pain out of your move. Competitively priced moving. Relocation services, office moves, and complete packing and unpacking services. They work with everybody to make it simple and easy for you to move and relocate. Call EJA Moving Company at 315-335-0516. When it's time to relocate, have EJA Moving do all the work for you. Hit them up online, ejamoving.com. Hey, Disruption Network. This is Mike Sacco, the general manager at Nye Volkswagen of Rome. If you don't know me by name, it's only because you have not received the best deal. There's only one reason to leave Utica, and that's to come see me in Rome and get the best deal on your next new, pre-owned, or certified VW. Mention that you heard this ad from Disruption Network and receive $250 off your next vehicle purchase. You'll know why our customers say, I love my Nye VW. Come see us at 5865 Rome Taberg Road in Rome or visit us online at nivwofrome.com. Want to know what's going on at the D? Hit up disruptionnetwork.net and check out our events calendar brought to you by the Events Co. Find out about upcoming guests, special events, concerts, show schedules, community activities, and more. Get connected at disruptionnetwork.net. Welcome to EC Radio Podcast. We would like to thank all of our sponsors for joining the Disruption team, and we hope that you will support all of our sponsors. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this program. What's good, people? How are you? Hope you're enjoying your Thursday. Time to disrupt your afternoon. It's EC Radio time. It is time. I am fueled by Utica Coffee today. That's for damn sure. Wake the hell up. That's what they preach on a daily basis. You can find our friends at Utica Coffee at wakethehellup.com. You can follow along on all Disruption Network social media platforms, and you're going to want to follow along today. If you're in Facebook land, too, make sure you click the share button. We've got a great guest on with me today. And uh, my guest, as a matter of fact, created a counterculture that back in the late 80s defined my generation. It definitely did. Is one of the main forces, the driving forces behind the Seattle music scene from back in the day, which is known as grunge. As a matter of fact, my guest, Bruce Pavitt, coined the phrase grunge. He coined the phrase grunge. Bruce, welcome to the show. Are you sick of that term, by the way? Are you sick of the term grunge? No, well, I'll never get tired of that word because it means it's it's paying the rent, so I'm all about it. That's why I'm on the show. I love it. I love it. Well, Bruce will be at MVCC on Saturday, November 1st with the Experience Nirvana show, which is pretty much got it's a presentation slideshow. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. The, the general theme is Nirvana and the rise of indie rock in the 90s, but in order to, to kind of talk about that, I look at the roots of, of Nirvana's success and the sub-pop record label which is the label I founded and the label that uh, discovered Nirvana. And we do zero in on what I think is a tipping point in Nirvana's career, an event that a lot of people aren't really aware of. It happened on December 3rd, 1989. Sub Pop had a showcase in London called Lamefest UK. Mudhoney, Tanner, 
Nirvana, 2,000 people in Victoria Theater. And at that time, you might remember in the late 80s, if you wanted to become an international phenomenon, you really had to get the approval of the very, very powerful British music media. If you had the attention of the British press and the British radio, then you would get the attention of the American press and the American radio. So Nirvana uh, is essentially went over the press at that time, and my book, Experiencing Nirvana, kind of focuses on that show and, and on that tour, and I'll be showing slides from that, that event. And I, I really do feel like it was a, a tipping point in, in Nirvana's career. Let's take it back from the beginning of Sub Pop. When you first started Sub Pop, did you have like a business plan? What were your long-term goals for Sub Pop? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because I had none. Well, <laughs> my, my short-term goal was simply to get interested in people. Okay, and that's why creative people do creative things oftentimes to not only express themselves, but to network with other creative people. Show some light on, uh, on the beginnings of the label. It actually started out as a radio show called Subterranean Pop in Olympia, Washington. And I was featuring indie music from around the country and a lot of records that most people didn't have access to, right? It was just underground American music. So I started a zine, essentially called Sub Pop, which focused on different regional scenes around the country. So by the time the label put out its first record in 86, I had put out a number of zines and had been networking and was very familiar with the whole kind of underground infrastructure in, in the U.S. And I knew the players. So when I started putting out records uh, with my business partner, John Poneman, that's because we knew, we knew how this, this system kind of worked. And it, was, uh, it wasn't an easy thing to crack. Were you a musician yourself? Did you play at all? Uh, I did play a little bit, but, but primarily I've always more or less been a DJ, radio DJ, club DJ. So I've been more of a music enthusiast than a player, but I did play uh, a little bit of guitar way back in the day, and it's something I, I don't really talk about publicly. So, <laughs> uh, How about the first band you guys signed, the first band you guys threw all your chips in on when you first started Sub Pop? Again, going back to the roots a little bit, the, the zine morphed into a, a cassette compilation. So I put out three different compilations featuring a variety of bands from around, around the world. The first record on Sub Pop is called Sub Pop 100. Mm -hmm. Again, it was, it was a mix of groups. Uh, but there was really an emerging culture happening in Seattle. And so I wanted to take that, that record label, which was essentially a hobby. I wanted to take that record label and focus it on Seattle. And the first record that I put out was called uh, Drives a Bone by Green River. Grunge fans might might know that uh, Green River split into basically Mud Honey and then Mother Love Bone and then Pearl Jam. And the second record that was put out by John and myself once we kind of opened up the office and became a corporation was Soundgarden. A pretty decent national buzz on Soundgarden by that time. Yeah, definitely some great, great acts coming out of there, some legendary stuff. If you were to form a Seattle fantasy band, like you know how they have fantasy baseball teams and fantasy football teams, what would your fantasy Seattle band be? If, if I had to, if I had to, I'll just change the channel a little bit, and if I had to pick a band that I, I, if I could go back in time, back to 88, 89, what show would I go, would I be most excited to see? Mm -hmm. And that would be... Mudhoney, which is a group that never really broke on the pop charts, but is and remains an amazing live band. And that was the band that primarily influenced Nirvana. When I first saw Nirvana, they were all staring at their shoes and they had zero stage presence. And after touring and playing with Nirvana, they 
learned that you have to move around on stage a lot to get people's attention. Was that part of your job is to get them prepped for the stage a lot and, and get them to step outside their comfort zone and, and to actually be a showman? Well, one thing we did at Sub Pop was we, we tried to see bands that had decent live shows and to really get them on the road. Uh, we wound up buying, <clears throat> I can't believe we pulled this off, but we actually bought a fleet of vans so that our bands could really get on the road. We had an in-house booking company, and we really felt that the best way to, to break the acts was to get them seen uh, on, on stage. So the more they toured, the better they got. How about some unique promo ideas that you used to send to radio stations to get your bands out there? Did you used to send them like neat little gifts and stuff like that? <laughs> no, there was no payola involved. No, we just put out good records. <laughs> you just put. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <clears throat> Man, you were surrounded by so many badass musicians. Was there one guy in Seattle that you would see out in the clubs and be like, "That's the guy right there. That's going to be a mega superstar." Was there any of that going on back then? I would say the first time I saw Cornell get in front of a microphone, the early days of Soundgarden, he was drumming. He was singing, but he was also drumming. He was behind the drums. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing a show at uh, the Rainbow Tavern in the U District, and Matt Cameron came in on drums. He's a great drummer. Amazing And drummer. Cornell got, uh, got on stage just to sing, and at that point, I, I knew that band was going to be huge. And I think, generally speaking, most people thought that Soundgarden would probably be the most commercial of all the bands. But as, as we know, there was, a, there was a lot of success by a lot of groups out of the Seattle area. Did you embrace some of that success when the majors came in and swept some of these bands away from you? Or were, did you have a little, were you a little jaded from it all? I, I will say that things got really difficult for the label when the majors came in and, and uh, basically offered all the bands more, more cash. Uh, there was a mass exodus from the label and it was, it was a little challenging picking up the pieces and, and reconstructing the label. But there seemed to be a never-ending well of talent. We, we signed a group, uh, for example, Sunny Day Real Estate, who helped kind of break the whole emo thing and sold hundreds of thousands of records. So we continued to do pretty good. But that was, that was a little harsh when, uh, when the scene blew up and the majors came in with their checkbooks. Um, you know, Bruce, you travel a lot. In your travels, do you see any music scenes out there nationally that are on the rise, such as like a Seattle? Is there anything up and coming that you could tell us? Well, you know, I, I don't do quite as much traveling as, as you might think. Uh, I've actually been living on a remote island for quite a while here, Orcas Island, population 5,000. Um, nice. I do spend time on the internet. I do travel. But I will say that in, in the Northwest, uh, an interesting development has been uh, there's a, an industrial town, Tacoma, Washington, that's about an hour south of Seattle that's just opened up. Two really interesting clubs, Alma Mater and the Spanish Ballroom, which I think are more interesting than any club in Seattle. So I, I can see a lot of creatives moving out of Seattle, going down to Tacoma. And this is kind of a general trend across the country where you have, again, cities like San Francisco that are too expensive, uh, more creative energy happening in, in secondary cities and smaller cities because the, the bigger ones like Seattle and San Francisco and New York are just too expensive to live in. Yeah, for no, most, for a lot of artists, no doubt. What, what advice can you give? See, here in Utica, we have a very thriving music community. There's so much talent in this town, but we're lacking in venues. What kind of advice would you give, like a, a thriving music community that is kind of on the uprise? What kind of advice would you give us? 
Well, first and foremost, the most important thing is to really keep it fun. Mm-hmm. Keep it fun. Uh, don't burn any bridges. Continue to work as a community. No backstabbing. The early days of, of uh, Seattle, every show I'd go to, and they're typically pretty intimate with maybe 50, 100, 200 people in the audience. And a lot of audience were other musicians. So there was a tre- tremendous amount of support uh, of musicians for one another, and you can't lose lose sight of that. That's really the most important ingredient. And if you continue to cooperate, have fun, and work together, it, it's it's going to grow. Was there any support? Was there any kind of like competitive spirits going on back in the day? I know you said everybody got along pretty well, but there had to have been some kind of competitiveness going on amongst the scene. You you'd be shocked. Things started to change. Once a few bands got signed, prior to that, the understanding was none of these bands was going to make any money anyway, so you might as well just have fun. And that's why the bands were so good, because they weren't doing it for the money, they were doing it for the love. But when the money comes in, uh, it definitely changes things. And I know, especially when Nirvana blew up, a lot of the other local bands wanted to jump to a major, and and for the most part, they, they kind of got burned. Because that system uh, will just chew you up and spit you out. Um, let's see. Give me a good road story. Give me a good Nirvana road story from 1989. Give me a little snippet of what happens at experiencing Nirvana, which you can see here November 1st at MVCC. Give us a little snippet. Ted and Nirvana had been traveling throughout Europe for about five weeks in a small band, a band, seven people in the band and gear. And they're playing shows to maybe 100 people a night, almost every night. And uh, they're getting pretty burned out. So we had heard we had heard that Kurt in particular was suffering from some nervous exhaustion, and people were actually worried worried about him until the big showcase in London, and Mud Honey was going to meet up with Tad and Nirvana at the time. So John and I flew down to Rome a week prior to December third and saw Tad and Nirvana perform. And at that show, and you, you can see this on uh, on YouTube, Kurt was seven, maybe eight songs into the set and uh, smashed his guitar, which was not too unusual. But then he climbed a PA stab, stack and threatened to jump. He basically had a nervous breakdown on stage. Oh, man. After he was talked down oh, by the security, he went backstage and told the band that the band was over. He was over it. That was that was the end. Uh so I, w- I would argue that the presence of John and myself really helped kind of salvage that. We pulled Kurt aside. We said, let's, let's go do some uh, sightseeing and, and kind of chilled out. And the rest of the, the musicians went further north up to Geneva where they were going to do a show. But, but pulling Kurt out for one day gave him a, a chance to kind of recuperate. We took a train. We met up. Uh, they were fine. Six days later, they rocked London and, and did a great show. But the, the pressure indie touring is is pretty phenomenal and it just blows me away that these guys were able to to even pull that off in the first place you mentioned earlier about going over to london and for like these bands to go to london and europe first before they become popular here in the states why do you think that is it that you got to realize Mm pre-internet uh the british press the british situation they had Melody Maker, Sounds, New Music Express. They had three huge weeklies, okay, that had to cover something. Uh, they had also they had great writers, 
Um, the writers were smarter. There was more of the press. You also had the BBC. So you had John Peel in the BBC. If he would play a sub-pop record, everybody in the country would hear it. There was no similar system in the United States. And commercial radio was pretty much on lockdown. Uh, it was very, very hard to break into indie music on commercial radio in the United States or get any kind of press like, like Rolling Stone, for example, which was the, the de facto uh, major music paper at that time. So there's no doubt that the British press was really uh, it was the most influential music press in the world. What are some of the important lessons you learned from working in the music industry? Some that you take with you on a day-to-day basis? that I said a few minutes ago, and that is keep it fun. Mm -hmm. Relationships shouldn't be toxic. If they turn toxic, move on. It's really about uh, creativity. It's about if you're you're either an artist creating or maybe you're you're a fan like myself who really appreciates creativity, and you got to do everything you can to keep things uh, respectful and healthy and maintain your integrity and keep those good friendships. Uh, very, very important. And when the checks start flying, uh, things can get weird. And when success comes overnight, things can get weird. Uh, whole new levels of stress, which which Kurt had to deal with and Chris Cornell had to deal with and so forth. The lesson I've always tried to keep close to my heart is keep your integrity and um, that's, that's quality friendships and, and creativity. And maintain your mental health, I, I take from that as well, huh? Good quality mental health comes out of that by, by maintaining uh, uh, good relationships, non-toxic relationships. Indeed. Bruce, are you a collector? Do you collect posters, albums, any of that? Well, I, I will say that for many decades, I was a rabid record collector, and um, it, was, it was pretty nuts. I'm sure some of the listeners can relate. I spent most of my time as a teenager in record stores. I grew up in Illinois. I used to take the train into Chicago, go to Wax Tracks Records. And there was a point in time where I had so many records that it would have taken me a lifetime to to listen to them. And I, I started my own record store, I started my own zine, I started my own record label. And I got to a point, uh, post Nevermind and all that, probably late uh, late 1990s where I, I realized I just thought it was a little obsessive so I, I kind of put the brakes on that but I, I have I do appreciate history I think our uh, archiving things is important and I do have uh, posters and photos and 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 records and so forth and this is what I attempted to do in experiencing Nirvana I pieced together a photo album of that tour I also pieced together a book called uh, Sub Pop USA, which is a collection of my my uh, zines and my columns. Because I do think history is important, and we need to share that stuff. Indeed. Do we expect like a Sub Pop documentary or maybe a mini docu series in the near future? Well, I uh, this is a, this is a little strange, but there for, for better or worse, there's a there's a script bouncing around. So there is a, a fictionalized comedy drama that may very well go into production and uh, and be shown in movie theaters in a couple of years. Uh, currently, three different studios are looking at it. I think it'll get made. There's rumors going around about a Chris Cornell movie going out there. Do you have any insight on that? I, I do not. In fact, that's the 
that's the first I've heard of it. That's the first. Yeah. So thanks for sharing. I, I, I saw some things about it on uh, on the internet recently that they were in pre production of doing a some kind of documentary about Chris Cornell and be interesting to see. Uh, I think they need to do yeah. some some more of that and get the story out there, not only of Chris Cornell but like maybe the whole Seattle scene as a whole. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a documentary that out in that's called. And it was streamed on Amazon recently, and they were they were in the in the trenches with a lot of uh, interesting footage. They had, uh, for example, they had footage of Nirvana playing "Smells Like Teen Spirit" for the first time at the OK Hotel. They've got interviews with people at Sub Pop. So that came out in '96. It's called Hype, and uh, I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's good. People might want to check that out. And I don't think that'll ever that that will ever be surpassed. One guy I've been fascinated with, and he's been gone for a while now, is uh, Andrew Wood from the Seattle music scene from Mother Love Bone. Yes. Do you have a good story about Andrew Wood? Can you give me some insight on what kind of a man he was? Sure, Andrew. Uh, he was, without question, the most flamboyant person I've ever met. And he just, he was larger than life. And when he entered a room, he usually had some kind of fake fur coat on and <laughs> and and platform shoes and his early band malfunction, which I saw several times, he'd come out and there might be 40 people in the room and he'd do, do the whole kind of Freddie Mercury, hello Seattle thing. I do have a memory of him pulling out one of my music columns and tearing it up in front of me. And I, I, to this day, I don't know why, because I've, I've always really loved Andrew Wood and malfunction, but somehow a review of one of their records just didn't hit him right. And he made a point of tearing it up and then throwing it in my face uh, at the at the Vogue nightclub. So that's one of my more distinctive memories. Of, and he could do crazy stuff like that. He was very theatrical. Yeah, it seemed. It. How about Chris Cornell? I, it, the day Chris Cornell died, I, I was down in the dumps for like a week. I could imagine what you were going through, having a personal relationship. Talk about Chris Cornell a little bit. Uh, that, oh, to I, me, that man's a god. Yeah, his passing was a shock. Uh, I... Just a little bit of background. I actually grew up with the guitar player, Kim Thiel, in uh, Park Forest, Illinois. We went to the same high school. I used to hang out at my house and play air guitar with the badminton racket to Kiss Records. So I've known Kim forever, and he's the one who stepped up and said, hey, I'm starting a new band, Soundgarden. you got to meet my friend Chris, where Kim was very verbal. He was a philosophy major in college. Chris was actually pretty quiet. He's pretty soft-spoken. Pretty, pretty gentle spirit, but you could see there was intellect back there. He was a real smart guy. Otherwise, him and Kim wouldn't have gotten along. Kim was uh, kind of an intellectual of sorts. So Chris was, was uh, as everybody knows, he was had an in incredible presence. Uh, he was the one guy in Seattle that, that could have certainly moved to L.A. and become an instant rock star. He had the looks. He had four-octave range. But he also had kind of a kind of a, a, a genius, you know. He was he was a real poet. Johnny Cash covered Rusty Cage. My God, I mean, what bigger honor can you have? He was he was also somewhat reclusive, so I didn't see him out at the shows as much as I him. He was a little quiet, but uh, he had an incredibly commanding uh, stage presence, and it was a real blessing for me to be able to see those early Soundgarden shows again, where there's 50, 100, 200 people in the audience, and they were totally amazing. Another guy I got to ask about too is Lane Staley. I was a huge fan, still a huge fan of AIC to this day. Uh, do you have any good Lane Staley stories for us to share? You know, I, I, I got to say that Allison Chains was actually 
they're peripherally kind of part of what was going in going on and i know that in the early incarnation of uh, as mookie blaylock did some shows with them but they were from the east side and i i never met lane uh I did see one one of their shows as part of a benefit concert, but I, I don't have a personal relationship with Lane, so I couldn't really comment. This has been great. I, you got any up-and-coming bands that are you can tell us about? Anybody we should have on our radar? Well, I got to say that, that Sub Pop has re- recently released, uh, re- recently issued uh, a new album by a group called Clipping, which is best described as kind of noisy industrial hip-hop and it's just very different i really recommend people go to youtube and try and find some of their videos because they're really not like anything you've ever seen so that's my hot tip clipping all right putting that on my radar i'm definitely gonna check this check out, it out. So Experience in Nirvana, it's it's happening on November 1st at Mohawk Valley Community College, part of the Cultural Series, and it starts at 7 p.m. on uh, next Friday, November 1st, the day after Halloween. And uh, you can see my guest, Bruce Pavitt, over there and talking about Sub Pop Records and Nirvana, Experience in Nirvana from 1989. This has been a great conversation. How can people find you online if they want to follow up with you? Sure, just uh, BrucePavitt.com. Excellent. And, and you're still in, heavily involved with Sub Pop, or have you taken a little bit of a backseat to it? Uh, I am not heavily involved with Sub Pop. Oh. I'm simply the founder. I did exit in the late 90s, okay. um, and I've been observing the culture, and I have been for many, many decades. I've, I, I know what's up with those guys. I do act as kind of an unofficial advisor, but um, I'm just chilling here on Orcas Island. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come talk with me. Also got to give some love and respect out to my boy Joe Basie for hooking me up with this interview. And uh, make sure you folks go out to MVCC next Friday, November 1st, and check out Experiencing Nirvana with Bruce Pavitt. Bruce, thank you so much for hanging out with me today, man. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. All right. Bye now. Bruce Pavitt, everybody. And uh, and that's going to conclude EC Radio for the day. So we are out. Thank you so much. I will see you next week. And I got to thank Utica Coffee for helping us out with this podcast, as well as my friends from Utica Hemp and Nye Volkswagen in Rome and also EJA Moving Services. Thank you so much to all our sponsors. And I will see you next week. Thank you. See you later. And now it's time to move. Let's face it, nobody likes to move. All the packing, unpacking, lifting, upstairs, downstairs, and broken everything, including your back. Let the professionals at EJA Moving Company take all the stress and pain out of your move. Competitively priced moving, relocation services, office moves, and complete packing and unpacking services. They work with everybody to make it simple and easy for you to move and relocate. Call EJA Moving Company at 315-335-0516. When it's time to relocate, have EJA Moving do all the work for you. Hit them up online, ejamoving.com. Hey, Disruption Network. This is Mike Sacco, the general manager at Nye Volkswagen Rome. If you don't know me by name, it's only because you have not received the best deal. There's only one reason to leave Utica, and that's to come see me in Rome and get the best deal on your next new pre-owned or certified VW. Mention that you heard this ad from Disruption Network and receive $250 off your next vehicle purchase. You'll know why our customers say, I love my Nye VW. Come see us at 5865 Rome Taberg Road in Rome or visit us online at nyvwofrome.com. Want to know what's going on at the D? Hit up disruptionnetwork.net.
and check out our events calendar brought to you by the Events Co. Find out about upcoming guests, special events, concerts, show schedules, community activities, and more. Get connected at disruptionnetwork.net.